And now, The Moment with Brian Koppelman. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Chuck Klosterman showing up in a few minutes. Chuck's one of the few people ever I got in touch with out of the blue and asked a coffee. This was seven years ago. I had read Killing Yourself to Live and was trying to figure out if it was possible to make it into a movie. I mean, that was the supposed reason for the meeting. But really, it was an excuse. Reading that book had made me want to get to know him. Or rather, reading Sex, Death, and Cocoa Puffs did. Only when Killing Yourself came out, I saw the opening to do it. Klosterman has written some of my favorite essays ever. I'm not sure he'd call them essays, by the way. That sounds too formal, too institutionalized. But one of those essays, The Importance of Being Hated, explained aspects of myself to me in a way that very few written pieces ever have. I want to talk to him about that one. Chuck's a professional ethicist. He's the ethicist for the New York Times. And he's considered sort of a pop culture intellectual, which is another term like essay that I'm sure he hates. We've actually emailed about the word intellectual, so I know that he thinks it doesn't mean what he used to and shouldn't. In a way, Klosterman is sort of a philosopher, just like Jeff Lebowski is sort of a hero. But mostly, what his work reads like is that it was written by your big brother, your imagined, wise, beneficent big brother, who's left the house before you and discovered the secrets, which rock bands to like, which books to read, which girls to date, and is now sending letters back home for you, just for you. What's weird is he's a few years younger than me, which makes me want to hate him just a little, but I can't. I'm sure he could explain why that is. He'll be here in a few minutes. Maybe we'll ask him. That's that's Chuck Klosterman yeah. now chomping. What are you chomping on? I'm just getting rid of the cough drop. No. Let me ask you, on the, on the box, do they say just chomp on that thing, or aren't you supposed well, to... if I suck on it, you'll hear it the whole time. So I was like, I'll just get right in there, you know, <laughs> drag it down the esophagus, uh, drag it... I now, hope it. I hope it's still. Uh, I think it's candy at this point. Well, you know, it's strange. What's the difference between a cough drop and a cough suppressant? How is this? How, I mean, I know what it technically means, but what is the suppressant doing? Is it drying? Thinning, right? Isn't it thinning? The, the suppressant is like actual medicine, and the cough drop is candy that you can justify. Maybe that's what it is. You know, because I was thinking uh, I, I need a. I should have got a cough suppressant, so I don't. Do I have a cough button? Uh, I don't think there's I a do cough, not. but if you okay. cough, you know, <coughs> I see just at the mere mention of coughing, you went, well, all right, Klosterman's a little sick, but he's here, he showed up, uh, which is great. Thanks, Chuck, for being here on the moment. Oh, certainly. So, you know that, uh, the idea of this is to start and, and look through a certain prism, which is, um, you know, some kind of inflection point or moment in your life when things could have gone either way or mm-hmm. a great moment. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was thinking, having read your stuff for such a long time, um, and knowing you a little bit, uh, you know, I, I didn't know if it was like when you moved to New York or um, when you got fired as the baseball little league coach, because <laughs> that's a pretty pathetic moment. Uh, I don't know how you pick yourself up from that. Well, you know, I felt I bounced back pretty well. I felt it was, you know, it's important to get fired at some point in your life, and it's good when it happens in high school, you know? And when you write about it as a grown-up, it seems like you had a great perspective on it, though. You don't really <laughs> write about what you what you did that night after getting fired. I, I, you know, I don't think I did anything. I think that I just, uh, I told my family I'd been fired, and they were very supportive of me immediately. Um you know, it's it's just strange. This is a weird thing. I, I definitely would not say that's like a hinge point in my life. But, no, but, but you know, but in a in a in a small town, you know, where everyone is so familiar with everyone else, um, you know, everybody has a pre-existing opinion about every person involved. So it wasn't even like, oh, they're taking my side against someone else's. They they're actually informed about what every person involved is like. Sure, of course. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, well, when no, that makes that makes sense, and and I uh, and I, I deserve really... to get fired. In retrospect, obviously, I like if I if I was had a kid playing little league baseball and someone who was coaching in the style as I was, I think now I would be like, well, that's just not how it's done anymore. Well, yeah, my favorite thing in that piece, and, and then I'll get to what I think the moment maybe is, but my my favorite thing in that piece is um, 
that you say they didn't like your uh, pyramid of success. And of course, it's John Wooden's pyramid of success. <laughs> you don't even say that. But, but well, it's not, not even, you know, it's John it's, Wooden took that from someone else, too. So it's like, you well, know, everyone's borrowing uh, something. John Wooden built that yeah. thing from a whole, mm. I mean, read his books. He, mm. he took a lot of different stuff. But I love that it, in your mind, it was 16-year-old yeah. Chuck Klosterman's <laughs> pyramid of success. But no, I think I've heard you say that getting the ethicist gig um, I heard you say that it was like the job you always wanted. And I wonder about that. I don't know if that was just hyperbole or if that was getting swept away in the excitement of of it happening. But I, I do wonder for what, what it means for somebody who has often portrayed himself as an, an outsider to sort of now officially be an arbiter for this institution um, of not just cultural studies, but of like of human beings and the way there's that they ought to act well first of all to a degree it is hyperbole because i didn't know the job existed until i moved to new york like i couldn't have grown up wanting to be the ethicist first of all it didn't exist when i was growing right. up um and then when i'm but when i moved to new york and started reading new york times magazine i was just so surprised that such a column existed i loved the idea of it um i thought would be you know it's because so much in writing I do, so much of the essay writing at least, is I'm trying to sort of get to some central problem, like some, you know, issue that, that I think is uh, in a way larger than whatever the ostensive topic is. But you have to get through that topic to get there. So basically you're writing about some entity or some idea or or some trend in the hope of getting to this point where you're like, okay, here's the core problem. And with the ethicist, it's like the core problem is it. It starts right there. Like, you're in the problem. Um, you know, the, the person says whatever is the specific thing that uh, is happening in their life. But the reason it got selected is because that represents something that's really fundamental. Um, you know, a relationship over money or, uh, you know, uh, the, your your perception of yourself as opposed to how you're perceived by other people and these things. So I could kind of get right into that, you know. Um in terms of the second part, I mean, you know, the, the the name of that column is a problem because it's the ethicist that people somehow do perceive the person writing it almost to be arguing that I am the most ethical person and that this is what I would do in that scenario. And that's not how it is for me. I mean, I, I, I don't feel that way at all. But I basically think of it, I think of it like this, okay? I'm looking at a problem that I'm not emotionally invested in. Like, I, I, if someone's talking about their mother and their neighbor and their boss or whatever, I don't know any of these people. Uh, you know, they do. They're being pulled sort of by the normal sort of emotional constraints of being a person. That they have these things that are, are, are clouding the issue because they have feelings. Well, I don't have that. I'm separate from this. So I just kind of look at it and I say, like, well, okay, using um, sort of a, a, an ethical framework that is kind of a combination of just society's pre-existing view of how the world should work and my own kind of view of what's right and wrong i would say well this would be um this 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 would be the most ethical most rational way to work through this it's not necessarily even what i would do i'm saying that i can because i'm not involved i can step outside of that and say this is what an ethical person would do yeah, so it's almost like uh, if objectivism didn't mean something else, you could call it the objectivist for mm. you or some the rationalist. But but I think in a way, and this gets to the heart uh, uh, of something, I think, um, that I've picked up in, in your work, which is uh, even when you answer the question first, you're answering it sort of in a, about the mechanics of the job, why it's a great job, because... It doesn't present these other challenges, which are things that you seem to have loved in your work, which was going a long way to try to find the core of an issue and how it related to you and, and your, your point of view on it. But it's funny. I, I said to my wife, Amy, who's an, a novelist, I go, um, hey, if you could ask Chuck anything, you know, wh what do you, you think you'd ask? And she said, you know, when whenever I read Chuck, I... I He's always, you know, he comes across as uh, brilliant and he answers these questions great. And then, I, but I always feel like there's some part of himself that he's not quite revealing, that he doesn't want to quite come across with. And then I said, that's so strange because the first thing that I wrote down on my notes before I even made questions for you was that you give a bunch of yourself away in your books, but I always feel like there's a part that's still hiding a little bit. Yes. That would be true. I mean, because I, I, I think um, I'm 
I guess I'm not super interested in being completely understood the way I think a lot of people who are memoirists are. I, that's not that's not a motivating factor for me. Like I, um, I, I think a lot of people who do first person writing are like that. I need the world to sort of to to sort of see who I really am to validate the fact that I exist and that I you know and I I don't feel that way. I mean, I think what okay part first of all. Part of the thing, the, my reasoning for wanting to do the ethicist, along with just sort of how it's fun and interesting, is I do think that too much of my prior writing was just all voice, to the point where that was that was so central to everything. The voice of it was so such a big part of it um, that uh, I you I started to feel awkward about it and a little uncomfortable. So I I feel like by doing the ethicist because it's first of all it's in the New York Times, so there are certain style limitations there. There are all these space limitations, and I'm not really writing. Uh, it's the person should not be, you know, as like hearing my voice as clearly as they would in a book I write or something. So I thought that that would sort of put demands on me that would make me a little better at writing. Just trying to get better at the actual act of like putting sentences together, being effective and efficient in a short amount of space. You know, being clear. You know, writing. If you're going to write about like a complicated issue, yeah, and you have unlimited space, in some ways that's the easiest kind of writing, because you can just sort of go through, like the you, you just every sort of sort of step in your mind. Well, is that the t Mark Twain's comment, right? You know, I wrote you a long letter because I didn't have time to write you a short yeah, one. Yeah, I suppose that makes a lot of sense. You know, yeah, because you know, because okay, so if writing long about a complicated issue is the easiest. Well, then next, I would say, um, would probably be writing, uh, writing long about something that's simple. Actually, that takes a little more work because you have to sort of make people enjoy the process that they're reading something pretty straightforward uh, over a long period of time. You get to go on a lot of tangents and sort of... But it's really like writing about complicated things in a small space is the hardest, you know? Complicated... Yeah, complicated moral ethical question and you have uh, a half... Really like a half a page to solve it. And I don't even have the choice of the space. Like, you know, like I am told on Friday, you you know, the question has to be between about 90 and 110 words. And then the answer uh, sometimes is 450 words or sometimes it's 700 words or sometimes we have 1,100 words and we can use two questions. So they kind of give that obstruction. Like, this is the space. Um, I wanted to have a question coming up. I've got a lot of Woody Allen questions, as one might expect. The idea of can you still feel comfortable to appreciate his films if you suspect that uh, you know that he's guilty of these allegations, or conversely, is it reasonable to boycott his films even though nothing's been proven? And I wanted to answer this, but I only had 450 words, and I tried and tried and tried, and I could not do it. So I said, like, I'll just have to do this some other time. Well, you could also do that for Grantland in a different way. Yeah, I could. I could. Then you could explore that question and. And that's like, sort of stealing from one source to do to use somewhere else. Not ethical. Yeah, not yeah. Well, that's I, the other thing about this job. It's really f crazy how now everything I do, I realize is viewed in, in a different with a different. Well, standard. it would have to be. Yeah. But I mean, uh, let me just circle back for a second because you you answered the question about h holding something back with sort of a um, yes, that's true, and that uh, it was never that important to you, which which is which is odd in a way for somebody who's written thousands and thousands and thousands of words about what he thinks of himself. Mm, yeah. I mean, what do you, like, what do you think it is that, that, that I guess stops you from being interested in, in going even deeper inside? Because it seems to me like you'll start with something that's on, that's on the outside. You'll process it through this filter. You'll then go back very often in your later pieces. You'll go back to sort of prove to yourself that, hey, I don't know that much. This is just kind of what I feel. And then you'll you'll leave it almost as though, even though you're very comfortable as an arbiter, being the arbiter in some ways has become less interesting and being the arbiter of yourself. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, that's, that's a, I mean, that's a hard question. I mean, it's not even a way, it's not even a question. It's like, it's kind of a... Well, no, but it's sort of like, a, having, <coughs> I, uh, I mean, have you noticed a shift in your work yeah, in a I way? Mean, I'm, I'm certainly less 
confident in uh, my view of the world and of myself than I was when I was younger. You know, it's just, and it's strange. I mean, when you're younger, it is a very obvious thing. But when you're young, of course, you think that as you age, you know, you don't know what your life will be like, but you assume that you will understand the world better and that you will have more clarity about how you feel about things. And the opposite, obviously, is what happens. I think almost everyone realizes that. Um, I think that... Sometimes, you know, the the main reason I write in the first person or about my own life um, is because it is the most effective way to get into whatever I want to write about. That, like, it's, it's I can, you know, I, if I talk about a, my, the, an experience that I have had, and if I feel like that experience is not super specific to that scenario, but sort of like kind of a general way how I view something... I just feel like it's faster. It's more efficient in a way. And then, and then it seems to me like if you look at some people who maybe people you know um, folks might say are contemporaries of yours in the nonfiction sphere, right? If you look at John Jeremiah Sullivan or Bissell or Franzen as an essayist or Wallace, I mean Wallace in particular would talk about later talked about how those versions of himself, which seemed like such real versions, and like he was giving so much up, maybe weren't completely versions of himself. Which is, whereas you're kind of up front almost stopping it a little bit short. I mean, do you think those are your contempt, those guys are doing what you do? I think that uh, those are better versions of what I do, sort of. I mean, I, it, it does, I don't, um, I don't know. I mean, of course, I would, I would, I would like that to be the case. I would, I would, I would love that if that was true. It does not feel real to me. To say, you know, and I'm not trying to be like self-deprecating. I, 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 I feel like that. I am. You know, everyone has strengths and weaknesses, and I think one strength that I might have is that I can look at myself pretty objectively, and I, I, I think I can objectively say that uh, my work is less literary than the people you have mentioned. But I, I was thinking about this morning the Toon Yards piece that mm -hmm. you wrote, uh, which is up on Grantland from about, a, I don't know, a year ago, a year and a half ago. And I, I noticed you, and I, I wrote this down, actually, to read to you because I thought, I, I thought it was revelatory in a way because you start by, by saying um, that the Toon Yards album, this is not a quote, the, you say the Toon Yards album came in first in the, in, uh, the Paz and Jop poll from... The uh, Village Voice. Mm -hmm. And then your next sentence is, I'm guessing this doesn't mean much to more than maybe 10,000 people in the entire country. In fact, if you effortlessly understood 100% of the article's opening sentence, you can probably skip the rest of the piece. Now, what I found fascinating about that is I think, in fact, you were only writing to those 10,000 people. And it's the exact opposite of what you said. Because someone who never heard Toon Yards... Uh, wouldn't know what to make of it at all. So I wonder what the like what the, and it, this goes to I think a broader question, which is about cool. But but I would say, what is it that that do you think that almost makes you want to like write off what you're saying and then say this is something that only the elites know about? And I'm not talking to these elite people. I'm talking to everybody else. But what we really understand is you're talking to those ten thousand people. What are you uncomfortable about? Um, well, first of all, that piece is very interesting. That piece was a mistake for me to do. <laughs> well, I was going to say the response to it was interesting, but Well, yeah. no, and the response is what I'm talking about. Why? Because I, uh, uh, that it... I don't mean to catch you off guard. No, I just no, think it's no. really, like, on Yeah, point. I mean, the thing is, it's like, uh, you know, I, I, I hadn't written anything in a while for Grantland. And I saw that this had won the passing job. And I was like, um, you know, it's interesting. I've never even listened to this record. I've read about it a little bit. I've heard my wife talk about it and stuff. I'm, I'm just going to play it and review it cold. I'm just going to play it and write it right now, you know. And I'm just going to kind of do this. And it's going to sort of be, in my mind, kind of a reflection of how the average person listens to a record that they've heard about but haven't played yet. So I did that. And, you know... It wasn't, I didn't, I could have done a good piece on it. I wasn't very thoughtful. It was just sort of blown up. I just kind of knocked it out. 
and I didn't think that much about it. And um, the response was made me just think like this maybe isn't worth it. Like it's not worth doing things like this because what are things like this? Well, <clears throat> I mean, so the piece that I did that I did not put really enough thought into to do in a serious way clearly got more attention than every other piece written about two yards combined. I'm but, certain of it. Oh, I'm you're, certain you're yeah. famous though. So that's part of it is you're a famous guy who writes about music and culture sort of making a statement about this this record but as uh, it turns out that yes that kind of is the case at least in this in this small sort of idiom of people interested in writing about tune yards i guess it is and um like uh uh i started to sort of realize that that the consumption sometimes the consumption of work uh is it, it, it's a that matters more than the creative part of it. So it's like, I can't do that. I can't, I can't. You, know. you mean the receiving end of it, the, the, the fact that your work is going to get received colors the, the creation of it to you after the fact. Well, I just, you know, I... Or did it have a chilling effect? Is that what you're saying? That it made you not want to really, you, you thought to yourself, not worth it anymore? Yeah, definitely. But, but wh Why? Well, um, because I started wondering what was my what is my purpose of doing this? Like, um, I'm not doing it for the money. I don't need the attention. Uh, I feel get more attention than I wanted to have. Um, I I don't enjoy like I you know you go through these phases in life. You know when you're I think when I was in high school and college, the idea of just having people read what I wrote was exciting alone. That enough. Sure. It was great, you know? And I feel like, you know, I see a lot of people on the internet now, I can see them having that experience. And then you kind of move up in that you don't just want to have people, uh, you know, well, because before that, before that experience, when you're in high school or in junior high, you just like writing. Like, I just liked writing when I was an eighth grader. I didn't, you know, if somebody else read it, that was interesting. But I mean, it was just a fun thing to do. And then it became fun to have people read that and see what that can do. And then it kind of became interesting that I could make a living on it. And then all of a sudden, it was like, not only can I make a living on it, it's like, I'm rich now. And like, I can have, I have this whole different life, you know? And then it gets to be like, well, but that's not satisfying. It's just not satisfying. Now I need to be a better writer, you know, for uh, other writers somehow. Or I want, you know, the people you had mentioned before. You start thinking to yourself, it's like, I want to be like that. And then you move again to, it's like, well, I just sort of want to enjoy the process of writing and I don't that the experience of that review uh, was not there was no fun part to it well maybe we found a moment yeah. that's a different moment actually which is that because it, it, it seems like what you're saying is that that really did and, and it, I don't I'm not sure that you've take that's exactly the the takeaway you ought to have it's not the healthiest takeaway mm. yeah but I can't, I can't dictate how I feel about things. That's the other thing. You talk about being nervous about writing about yourself too deeply or too intimately. I realize I cannot control how I think or how I feel. I think many people do not admit that about themselves. Sometimes they will admit that they can't control how they feel, but they can control how they think. I have realized that people cannot control either of those things. But you can, you can, you can, uh, you can progress in the face of that stuff if you want to. Right. Yeah. You can move on. You mm -hmm. can press through. You can you can press through despite it. You could say to yourself, I'm going to do this and it's going to cost me something, but I'm going to do it. Well, okay, if you, you felt there was using, enough of a reward to do it. Using your example, using this two yards example, what was the reward from it? The reward from it is, I guess, that more people know who Toonyards is now. Like, in a way, I probably did help her career to a degree. Uh, I'm well, sure, what's funny you know, is you didn't but, rip her record. You didn't rip no, her record. No, I liked it. I thought it was pretty good. But it just, it, it may, it, I... Well, people misunderstood it because, when you say you wrote it no, fast, because well, no. I think the reason people misunderstood it is because of the Cop Rock thing. Because Cop, which you, you mentioned Cop Rock in it, as though during its time, Cop Rock rock was saluted and then remembered as horrible when in truth it's always been a punchline it was canceled after like three oh, well, that... episodes no because you know you had these signifiers and you're pretty aware of like the effect of like um, you know using some kind of uh, a mimetic device it, the, you know the result of that is uh people latch on to those well things. then i misused the word androgynous 
and I and I and, and I and that was that was a big part of it, and that's a big mistake to make now, you know. And I, I felt bad about that. Um, but what, I, what I'm what I'm what I'm what I'm also interested in is, and, and, and just going back to it is, um, in, in the way that you, and I, it makes sense to me that you've that you've grown. Everything you said about your artistic progression makes total sense to me. I'm sure it's what every great or many great artists have experienced, right? The the joy of starting and realizing I have a, uh, whether it's a gift or like a, a love for this, so I want to pursue it. And then you get good and you get certain feedback and you get off on the feedback. But then you realize, oh, I actually want to be good again. And you chase that. That, that all makes sense. But there is something that I think also has happened, it, it seems just as a reader, which is with, you found yourself, I think, in a, in a unique position and not even Lester that's why it's unique because not even like Lester Bangs was really in this spot and James Walcott certainly wasn't in this spot which is you're um, you were at the epicenter of cool a bunch of different times and sort of decidedly uncomfortable with the notion of being cool and of what's assumed to be cool how do you figure well, look at the Billy Joel essay. Look at the way you talk about Michael Bay. Like, you were at Spin Magazine when that was the coolest place to be in a lot of ways. Well, yeah. And, and you were pretty but... considered sort of like, in, I mean, you were adopted by, I mean, you're the poster child for Williamsburg, even though you don't live in Williamsburg. I mean, you are, you are a part of that thing. And I think you, even just saying to me, what do you mean by that? Like, I asked well, three different they... smart people, what would you want me to talk to Chuck Closeman about? And all three said the word cool what it means to him and how he relates it. I'd already written that down to talk See, to See, this about. is what it's more like. It's more like the band Rush. Why? There's great... Grady Lee said something. I, I think I wrote about this in Fugger Rock City. It's very true. He was sort of like, if you talk to metal people, they will be like, Rush is not metal. Like, like Rush is... That's prog rock or, you know... So metal people don't think they like Rush, you know? And if you talk to, say, an average pop consumer, they're like, well, Rush is a metal band. I'm not really into that. So, like, the metal people think they're non-metal and the non-metal people think that they are. I think that... That, that people who who identify themselves as being cool is a big part of their sort of perception. That they, that is a, a, a sort of a driving element in, in how they self-identify themselves. And that's really their goal more than anything else, more than, you know, any, any kind of commercial success or, or sort of peer social successes that, that they're a cool person. They think that I'm actually extremely uncool. And then I think people who don't ever worry about the idea of cool who sort of just think that that's something that's like they talk about on happy days or like I use the word cool to describe, you know, a new set of speakers I got. I think that they assume that, that I must be cool because I seem like I'm interested in those things. So I don't really I, – I think that I'm, I'm generally seen as uh, very lame by cool people conventionally cool people and cool by people who are not interested in coolness. And uh, I, that, that seems kind of right to me in a way. Because I, what the things that I guess the things that I thought were cool were always very like the like on the poles of the most obvious definition of cool and the least obvious. Well, sure, like in your cruise essay, you write about how you just casually toss off that bands like Journey were cool at one time, and I, reading it, thought like. I loved Journey back then, but I knew I was uncool for liking them. Mm. They were never... I mean, I don't think they were ever cool. They were popular. But but I... I again, I, I think that you're, in a way, poor-mouthing your status. I think cool people adopted you. You're saying that they don't think you're cool. No, I don't... I, I think that those I, people... You were at... I mean, you were... I've seen you at a concert with the people that you worked with at Spin, and every one of them dressed and acted... Not, they were nice people, but they were all hipster, cool people. Yeah, well, uh, I'm certainly an easy person to look like. Like, if, <laughs> if somebody aspires that to, to look like what, what they think of a, a version of a cool person is, and then they pick me, it's pretty easy. I mean, if you grow a beard and you don't care about <laughs> what pants you have, um, you can wear glasses. I, I you know, I, 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 now it's weird because the way we're talking about this, I'm, I think it, it almost makes it seem like, like I'm, um, uh, oh, I don't know, beating up on myself or not being cool enough. I, that's not what it's no, like. No, that's not what I think. Because uh, the, the, no, I think you have a distance. No, no, I think that yeah. what I read, when I, what I, what I see is, um, 
you chafing against inclusion in that group of people, but being um, carried on in, on their shoulders in a way. They support you and salute you, and and I, I see it as a tension. That's why, like in that Tune Yards thing, what really caught me was you saying, "If you know these terms, this article isn't for you." But but I have to have the knowledge that in fact that's who you were writing to. But there was something about that idea that made you uncomfortable. And that's what's interesting to me. Well, I mean, the main part of that was that I it, it had been so long since, you know, and this just changed when I went to spin. Because when I was working for a newspaper, I you was know, first in Fargo and then in Ohio, and I would review a record um, very often um, if it was a new band, the record itself would be my first exposure to what they were doing. I mean, maybe I would look at, like, literally, like, the release, like, the press kit or whatever, but not even, I would usually not even read these. So I was really having a relationship with music and having, right. a pers- you know, um, and then it, at Spin, it became almost impossible to do that because everyone just knows everything and everything was happening so early. Of course. You know, so I was like, well, okay, here's this thing. Because of the way my life has changed, because I'm no longer, like, a working rock critic anymore, I got to an age where... The, the the sense that I need to know what's going on uh, was I wouldn't say a luxury, but just sort of like a novelty. Like it didn't I didn't feel it was important. Okay, so here's something now that they, they won the passing job. You know, uh, uh, this is what the, the 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 sort of the 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 critical consensus has decided was the best record, and I haven't even played it. So what if I just play it now in my apartment, uh, maybe twice, uh, and in the span of that two hours i'll just write this thing and i'll see you know i'll try to have like this like kind of this real experience with it you know um but i'll try to be funny because it's fun to be funny that's how i like to write i basically write for a a different version of myself that's what i was about to ask who are you that's what i wrote down to ask you just now who are you writing for Mm. i it is it's impossible to try to write for a specific kind of person who isn't yourself. I just, I think, I think that there are certain things that readers are perversely sophisticated about. They, they can easily tell when someone is trying to be controversial on purpose. They can really sense that. And they can also really sense when someone is trying to write to them as if they are a demographic, almost like as if they are like a, uh, an advertising group or whatever. So I, I, you know, uh, and I think I was very young. I was in my early 20s when I realized this. So I I just kind of write uh, uh, for like a version of myself maybe last year. Like, you know, well, I, I think when any, you know, okay, I wrote Fargo Rock City when I was 27, I think, 27 or 28. That was, book was really written for a 26-year-old me. Because you'd learn something in the interim. Well, no, it's just that like, okay, you can't write, you can't learn information that you already have. In other words, I can't write a book and as I'm typing, learn something about what I'm writing about. It's pre, it's things that I, you know, what I'm kind of doing is like my mind or anyone's mind, you know. It's almost I always use this analogy. It's almost like like a like a ball of twine. And all the ideas are all kind of wrapped up. And then writing is straightening it out. So when I'm writing something, I'm not going to write a sentence that's going to be surprising to me. Like, I cannot surprise myself with something. That I never do. happens to you? How can it happen? It always happens. How? Uh, I think it always happens. I think that, uh, well, maybe because I'm writing fiction a lot of the time, right? I'm writing dialogue. But I will know basically what I'm going to write a scene about, sort of. But a character will say something. Now, I'm not someone who believes a character. It's me. It's my subconscious, right? Mm-hmm. But a line will show up, and sometimes it's really sort of knowledge that I didn't... Like, I remember I was writing A Solitary Man, and Mike, Michael Douglas, uh, the character was named Ben, had this Theodore Roosevelt quote at his command that I swear I didn't know that I knew. But you did. Well, but I didn't you know I did. You were conscious of it. But that I mean, but is what yeah. I'm saying. Yes, so, so I'm saying you, you may... Yes, it's swirling around your subconscious. But that's what it is. It's bringing... No? Okay. Well, here's... Okay. Here's the same thing. Okay. So that this quote was in your subconscious. Okay. Let's say someone else had written that and you had read it. It wouldn't be like you were learning it. 
It would be like, oh yeah, that seems familiar to me. Something about this is real true, and that's it that would hit happen. you. Yeah, it would. Yeah. There, uh, but it was the the information was actually there. I mean, this is a it's a really kind of a, uh, this is a very kind of hazy thing we're discussing right now. It's like what people know and what they don't know. But I always think that the that yeah, that but for people who like writers, it's fascinating. So yeah. I don't don't be like go, keep going. That it just it, it it always feels to me like uh, I am writing toward. Or for the version of myself that learned that information, and I'm, I'm, you know, and then there'll be that's the kind of the person I'm writing for. Not right. So, so someone who's had the kind of your life experiences, your someone who's who's gotten to the same sort of the same place in life that that. No, no, it re, no, really, just it, it's it's because. It, for me, I, you know, everyone is different. So I don't like. I don't want to talk about this. Like this is like the hot way you do it. Like this is the way you should write or whatever. I, 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 but you're I, a great you, writer, so it's useful um, to talk about it. I, I just think that that you write something that uh, you would enjoy reading. Like you're writing the book that does not exist that you wish you could read, and then you hope that almost coincidentally other people feel the same way. Um, Sure. Well, that's like goes back to Emerson said that like the thing that's inside you that you know you should say if you say it truly will strike a chord in others who are thinking the same thing. Well, you know, I I always wonder about this. It's sort of like okay, let's say uh, a a child was left on a desert island by themselves. Okay, like we took a five year old kid and we dropped him on an island by himself with no other people. Yeah, left food there and stuff so he could survive. As an adult, he builds a windmill. Okay. Does that make him a genius? Did he invent the windmill? Yes. He did. Yeah. So it's the same as the man who built the windmill. Or is it what that one? Because this will happen. Or is it the collective unconscious? You know, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm always like interested when I write, I'll have like a, I'll write a book or something and, um, it will be compared to people who I am unfamiliar with entirely. And then I will go back. And I will read them sometimes, you know, just to see. And uh, most of the time, it actually doesn't match up that closely. But sometimes it kind of does. So then I wonder, like, well, did that sort of exist in the culture, this knowledge? And that, that I just absorbed it through all these kind of second and third hand means. And then kind of rewrote it in a modern way. And actually, that without any knowledge, without any intent, I have sort of plagiarized a pre-existing idea. Or did I come up with the idea in the same way, in the same manner, so it's actually, it's just the only thing that is different is the amount of time that has passed. Or like, you know, things like, you know, like like the desert of the real and things like that. There's lots of ideas like that in some of my books uh, that I, I really was not familiar with that work when I was doing it, like, you know. Um, and, and now, of course, it seems sort of connected. So was I sort of you know, was I like, uh, was the, you know, was the Matrix ripping off ideas? I was watching the Matrix and actually getting the ideas in a way that uh, that allowed me to sort of then put them in the kind of language that almost seems like philosophy again. Yeah. Well, yeah. Do you? I mean, do you consider yourself a philosopher in some way? Like, what? How do you characterize what it is that you that you do? I always sort of think that I'm mostly a journalist, but you know, I don't do much journalism anymore. It's really rare that I do. That would what I consider journalism. I think that mostly what I do now is more media, and I think that that there's you know there's been a real a real sort of chasm between the ideas of journalists and sort of media people. And I feel like now I'm almost closer to a media person. Um, because you're on television and on no podcasts because, or because what you're writing, because you're now writing from the perch of a well-known person. And so that's different. Well, mostly just because to me, journalism fundam is fundamentally grounded in reporting. And I don't do that much reporting anymore. I had that Brown story last year. That was journalism. Um, did a piece on Royce, Royce White that was journalism, um, but a lot of the times it's it's not you know like a uh, for like I wear the black hat. I didn't yeah. do any interviews for that book. I was well, like I was sort of, kind of I was reading other you know things. So it's like I guess it was almost what like, was informed. What were you reading that informed that book? Well, which if the audience hasn't read that book, I'm not gonna you know I'm not obviously here pimping your stuff, but that is or I think it's a great book and I think it's like a really Im important book. 
because it, it talks about um, our ideas of good and evil, but it really talks about the, the way in which, without even realizing it, we classify these things and we judge them. It, it didn't work out the way I wanted it to, though. Why? I got to say that. Why? Well, I, I guess I had an idea for what the book was going to be like, and I, I, I thought that it would be very comprehensive. I thought that it would uh, be very divorced from the idea of me as a character in the book itself. Um, I had made a decision going in. I was not going to use any swear words in it, and I was not going to use any footnotes. And I had all these sort of obstructions. And then it ended up being like all my books kind of. I mean, you start the book looking out your window at the way people are dressed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, it's right. But, but that wasn't but, the first thing I wrote. That's sure. the thing. Right. That's just what ended up being. <laughs> that was. That was like. It wasn't like I wrote the book in sequence. You know, it's like. A... Oh, horrible! Like that in the original Longest Yard. You know, when the guy doesn't want to admit that he plays football, and then finally, I play football. So, you, in the end, you play football. Well, and I also I thought to myself, it's stupid. I'm doing this. Like, why am I trying to write a book that isn't the way I write books? What is the purpose of doing that? Then I said, so I was like, well, who is motivating me to do this? Or what is motivating? And what was? It wasn't myself, obviously. So then I was like, I just got to go back and just do this the way, you know, just just do it. Just kind of do the way, just... So you were able to clear the brush of the BS, of whatever was making you think you had to be different. You were able to clear that out and then just sort of be yourself. Well, yeah, but, you know, it's like you have, you have certain aspirations for yourself. Mm-hmm. And... I feel like that when, like when I was writing my first books, the aspiration was that the books would exist. <laughs> that was the whole thing. Absolutely. Like, you know, the, the first book I wrote, I did, did not assume would, I thought maybe it will get published, but I didn't, that, I just more or less wanted to see if I could actually do it, you know? Um, and now it's not like that because now I know they'll get published. Like I know, and that's, so now I also have this, this, like I had a lot of fear about the, my first novel. Right. Because I knew it would be published no matter how terrible it might be. So, so did I you was, grind extra hard on it? Oh yeah. That took a long time. It took right. a long time. Longer than it should have. But, um, you know, and, and, you know, it, I, you know, like the reviews were mixed. Man, was I happy. Right. Mixed was great for you. That's all I want. I, I just did not, I just didn't want it, it to be just this, because I don't, it's hard to gauge your own work. You know, I always think it's interesting, like, you know, like, I don't think Paul McCartney is lying when he's like, Flaming Pie is better than the Beatles. I always wonder this. I, yeah. I, I think that he kind of, because you know, he has changed. I'm sure that like Paul Westerberg thinks his solo material is better than the replacements because he's like, I'm a better guitar player. I, I've obviously learned how to write songs better. So even if I am technically improving as a writer, which I might be able to be aware of, sometimes I think that's actually the opposite of what makes it good. Like, sometimes I think that the early books I did are better than the ones I'm doing now because they're not written as well and people get a different experience from them. You think that, but it's, it could also be um, some sort of, just something immeasurable about the, the, the thing that was driving you to communicate. That despite, I don't think it's because the, tech, because the technical aspects aren't as strong. I think it's because what was fueling you one, not you necessarily, it's fueling the artist at certain points is so powerful and potent that it, it overcomes the technical limitations. Mm. That's hard, you know, I'm not sure what it is. I'm not, re I'm, I really don't know. I, I mean, I think about this one essay of yours, you know, um, the one about arch enemy and, and nemesis. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you hear about, I wonder, do you hear about this? Do people bring it up to you a lot? That, yes. That, I mean, I don't know what a lot is, but more than the other pieces, yeah. More than the other pieces. I'm saying that, that become, even though that wasn't, what book was that in? <sighs> that was, it ran in Esquire, and then Esquire it was originally. in the, this Chuck Klosterman 4. 4, right. Yeah. Um, but somehow, you, and now, I don't know whether you think that's a good, I mean, do you recognize why that's such an important piece? Um, do I recognize why? Uh, yeah, do you recognize why people carry that around? I think that... Uh, because it feels true to people. I think that's why. I think that people read that and they think to themselves, "There's something I, 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 I there's something true about this that I, I mean, because you know, uh, 
like and the title is the importance of being hated being hated right is that the final i mean because that yeah. you like when is when like i feel like the, the goal would be for someone when they're reading my work <laughs> would be to feel as though they're writing it with their mind that it's like the book That's is great. blank and as they're reading it the words are just appearing and i'm like three words ahead of them and i think you know that the, that there it's almost like that something about it seems as though that they are actually making and that i work very hard to make that happen i mean of the things that i put time into by far the biggest is simplifying the writing that's the main thing that i worry about i you know i that i want the writing to because i just think of writing as a communicative art um, you want to be, you want your ideas to come across as clearly as people as possible. You don't want people to be confused by the meaning, uh, unless for whatever reason you need people to have, you know, like a cognitive yeah. dissonance. For the most part, though, you want it to be clear. So I think, and when I think it's really clear, the reader actually feels like they're doing the writing with their head because yeah. they're able to know. Well, that's that yeah. moment where they're nodding along and mm. they feel really super connected to you, right? They feel married. Your vision kind of syncs up with where they are. I, I, I feel like you have a theory you were going to say why you... And I'm curious. i got to admit, personally, I want to know what you, why you think Well, that. no, I think you're, I, I think you're right. I, what, what's interesting about that piece to me is I, I know it hit me when, when that came out 10 years ago. I was thir- you know, in my mid-30s. I remember it, it, it made me understand so much about my childhood in the way that the best uh, essay writing does. I immediately was able to assign... <coughs> And for those of you who don't know, I'm covering the cough, but for those of you who don't know, um, this this essay is about um, having, as you're growing up and through your life, a nemesis and an arch enemy, and the the function that they serve in, in your life, how your, your nemesis drives you versus the way your arch enemy does, and how one is more like a friend and the other really mm. isn't a friend. And I was able to understand certain relationships, but what was great to me is that my son probably read that piece when he was 12. Uh, he's 18 now. And it explains so much to him. And I gave it to my wife and it explains so much to her. And so I, I, and not just explained it, it lets you understand and forgive yourself. I think that's part of what's great about that piece is I think when we identify those people who we haven't always been charitable to, or who, who've been maybe wronged us, um, part of growing up, is trying to own responsibility for a bunch of that. And in a way, um, understanding the ways in which we're helpless to those feelings it allows us to forgive ourselves. And so I think that that's part of what happens in that piece. Hmm. Is that possible? Oh, it's definitely... I mean, the fact that you said it means that it happened to at least one person. I mean, the fact that you had that feeling means it, it is, it's more than possible. It's true for you. I don't know if it's true like that unilaterally. I can't say that that was the motive going into it i mean this, you know but it seems like you're trying to figure i didn't like for instance i didn't i reread a bunch of stuff yeah. prepare for this but i didn't have to reread that like i remember you went to many it was minneapolis that you went to the an event at some point or somewhere in the store you go somewhere you or someone in the story ends up in minneapolis for some reason your arch enemy yeah, maybe yeah, yeah, yeah he does no, no, no the, the the nemesis the nemesis living does. in minneapolis yeah, right and, and you end up in minneapolis yeah well i i still i'm still involved with that guy right I, still saying, see, I see him all the time I'm saying, no, so a, that like no. i remember that as being so uh, real and I, I don't know me i i wonder when you were writing that were you writing it to explain it to yourself in the way that i experienced it Boy, you know i i don't know if i was i mean sometimes there is some truth to this idea like like i'm not comparing myself to george orwell but one thing that George Orwell said that is amazingly true is that he did not know how we felt about things until he wrote about them. That's what I, you were saying and doesn't that, happen before, and I'm saying that does happen. Well, that's what I'm saying. How? What? But that you were talking about different things. He's talking about how he feels about something. Yes. And I'm saying about what I know about something. Okay, I conflate those things. I yeah. conflate the, those things. And but I right. So were you trying to explain your emotions? Yes, you knew these people existed, but were you? I mean, is that a is writing ever for you a way to make sense of stuff? Oh, it must be. It, it must be. It must, because, I mean, it, it must be. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, and the weird thing to admit, but it's got to be true, is that I don't really know why I do this. And that, that we'll talk about this, uh, that we can talk about this subject for a long time, and I will come up with sort of ideas. But I don't think I really know. I mean, you know, he, my fear 
one of my fears in life is that there is something super obvious about me that everyone sees but me. That there's something that everyone knows about me. That every like people who know me well, people who only read what I write, people who only know me sort of as some character that they don't like on the internet or whatever, that they know a truth about me that I cannot see. Because I see this in other people sometimes. I see other people who do not understand or do not recognize the sort of the fundamental thing about their identity or about their character. So I'm so worried about this all the time. And I, cause I, cause it could be something good or it could be something terrible. You know, it could be a good thing. It could be like some people do not realize the great thing about themselves. And, and that, 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 you know, but more often than not, it's not that. It's almost neutral. It's like, it's like to you, uh, life is like, uh, that game of cards in the basement in Inglorious Bastards in the basement bar where you have a card on yeah. your forehead and everyone else can see it. Now, it might be the ace of spades, but it might be the deuce of clubs. And you're saying you don't, you yeah. don't know. Well, I just, I, I just, I think that, not, and not only do I, I think it's possible, I feel like, I feel like it must be true because, um, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm so often confused by things about myself that I'm not confused about in any other circumstance with any other person. What kind of thing? Well, I feel like that, uh, this was more when I was at, spin but also I, I guess i did this for esquire a little bit for gq too um that you would do celebrity profiles and i felt like i was very good at sort of taking like the pre-existing perception of someone actually talking to them and asking them questions that i was legitimately curious about kind of pushing those things together and sort of getting a real understanding of what this person views thinks of themselves and how they view the world and you know i mean you can't really learn somebody from spending an hour with them but in some ways you can learn more than you think and especially if you ask them directly about how they view the way they are perceived because then they start talking in a way that uh, is very revealing about themselves. You know? um, uh, but I can't, I can't do that with myself. I can't like that two-year thing you're talking about. I, I was very surprised that that happened. Um, and now looking back on it, I wonder like, shouldn't have been. I should, I should have obviously realized these things, but maybe I didn't. You know? Well, no, it's the whole question of like. Uh, also, I don't know why it even bothered me when you think about it. I mean, obviously, I I've consumed other critics in my life. And that happens. Some, you know, it's like you know, it's it's part of it. It's just part of doing it. But yeah. well, I wonder in a way, if you were, I mean, it's for you to say, but in a way, the people who were responding to you, maybe what you thought you were doing, and you kind of were, was not taking a shot at her. I mean, it seems like you thought you were taking a shot at some of those critics uh, who were anointing her and trying to protect her and actually saying it's too soon. Let this. I, I, no, I mean, what I was really talking about was, and I, and this is actually still true is I was talking about the false reality created by media and that, that, that there is that, that what the, the idea of, of sort of, uh, what her, uh, where she, what she, where she kind of occupies, what place she occupies in the culture. Um, it does not matter if there's a consensus about it. That is an unreal construction. And if at any point, uh, you know, uh, it proves to be false, everyone will just kind of say like, ha ha, that happened. <laughs> you know, like, you know, can you believe we thought this? You know, and, and I think that's a, just a, a kind of a sad reality about the way the world works. Yeah, I, I mean, I remember when that album came out because the Sound Opinion guys were all over it very early. You know, that the Sound mm -hmm. Opinion, uh, mm -hmm. Dear Goddess and Cot. And I got the record, and I listened to it like eight times in a row over a week walking around the city. And where I came out was, boy, she's terrific, and I don't, it doesn't move me. So I understood, I, I thought, wow, she's a great artist. I could understand what people loved about what she did, like rhythmically, melodically. Um, I thought, I think she's the real deal, but it, it just didn't hit me. When I read your thing, I understood it through the sort of prism. All right, I just have a couple more uh, things I want to ask you about, and then I'll let you go to your sickbed and recover. Um, and, and well, this connects to it, which is, to me, your approach as a critic was always sort of like, um, and this is one of the things I think is really generous about what you do, and maybe what people, maybe the short space of that article didn't let you get to, but it seems to me like you always start by trying to understand what the artist is trying to get to. And then you kind of render some sort of aesthetic judgment, and that there's a humanism 
at hand and an attempt to connect to, to the artist, even if you end up saying, I have no idea what this says about the person. Do you, do you still feel like you try to approach it that way? Well, you know, I think uh, there was a time in my life where, say, I would review a Dave Matthews concert, and it would be it would be very easy to make a lot of jokes about Dave Matthews, and right. and and to a degree also his audience, and and sort of about the whole aesthetic he was going after, you know. And part of when you do something like that, part of what you think is that, well, he doesn't care, you know. It's like he's rich, you know. But then, in truth, I think in many ways he's the only one who cares. Like, he really is the only person who actually feels as though what he's doing is important enough to matter because his whole world. You know, like, if if um, if somebody writes, say I get, like, a, a really negative book review, okay, um, you know, you're, the, natu- the gut reaction is to think, like, oh, my God, it's going to make other people think this book is bad. Although that doesn't really happen. People read the review and they're they're objective. They're kind of outside of that. They'll be like, "Well, you know, uh, I'll have to see for myself." I'll, you know, um, but for the actual person who does it, you know, it matters differently. And I think that that I'm I'm more aware of that now. Like life has taught me to be more aware of that. That when I you know that when I am writing about someone, um, the uh, the only person really invested in the description is the person and myself because we're the only people who are really involved. So, I I mean, is that humanist? I guess in some ways it should just be common sense, but it's common sense no one seems to have. Because you still hear that all the time. I see people all the time working from the perception that, uh, that, I I don't know. A big critical uh, theory is uh, you, the artist, have actually no stake in the review. That the review is not for you. I've had many discussions with critics who say that. They're, they, they, the, that criticism is for other people, and you, your job is to keep creating art. Oh, I know. That would be a great way to, to – and I think that that would – you know, maybe that's how I would feel if, um, you know, if I was a guitar player. But, you know, I, I grew up <laughs> reading – you know, I was interested in, like, what the second Poison record, how it got reviewed by Rolling Stone. Like, you know, I was always interested in that. I was interested in, in you know, what, what movies that Spin was writing about in the 90s. And I would want to see those movies, you know, and I was interested in criticism. I became a critic. I did all those things. So then it's really weird for me to for someone to say, like, well, don't read your reviews. It's like I've read reviews about bands I don't care about, but now I'm supposed to <laughs> not read reviews. So, of course I do. I have realized that that I don't, like... um. I mean, I am interested in what the reviews say. I'm interested in it. I don't... I often disagree with it. I'm Especially the positive ones at times. I definitely disagree with why they think something is good. It's not my intention. They missed your intention. Well, they, I mean, if but if they missed it, it's because I, it was my fault. Okay, just a couple no. more things and we're done. One, because these are things I really... A quote of yours that I found fascinating, which was, uh, I have an extremely loyal fan base, which gives me freedom like the Grateful Dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know what you mean to say there, which it gives you the artistic freedom, but uh, do you ever worry about that that, that that can have the capacity to reduce artistic ambition as easily as it can stoke it? Um, it, it could, but I'm just not like that. I mean, like, you value I, them too much. No, what I'm saying is I'm not like, I don't, I don't think I would ever, what I meant when I said that is, is that's a, to me a positive thing. Like, I think I could write a really weird novel and enough people would buy it that the publishers would say it validates doing this. I mean, because there's this... Yeah, your audience will hang with you. I mean, like, in the way, I'm a Dylan and R.E.M. fan. I will buy every Bob Dylan album and every... If R.E.M. ever got back together, I'd mm. be at the first show. Mm. Mm. So, yeah. and your fans... I mean, I buy, you know, I buy all your books. I buy every one of your books. Mm. So, I get that. But I just wonder if there's a flip side to it. Well, I, I it, it could. I mean, that, and it could be something that I'm not aware of. You know, that could that could happen. I mean, I I I, I never like I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. Like I don't know what I'm like I don't know what direction my career is like. Like I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. So I I don't know how I could um how I could be like lazy about being confused i never see laziness in your writing you're not a lazy writer i don't i mean you may see spots i don't i don't see it i just think it's a 
an interesting position to be in, um, to be aware that you have this fan base and these people who are engaging with you when you're not in the room. And then how that, how you, how you, you know, to me, the challenge would be how to not keep an awareness of that when you're creating. Yeah, I guess that's true. I mean, I, I, like, I know that, you know, people have been really want us to do a sequel to Rounders, our first movie. Uh-huh. And I know the way people have engaged with that film. And, you know, from Simmons on, on down. And I mean, it's going to be, if we ever do it, it'll be almost impossible to get all that out of our heads and just write it. Yeah, that it, would be hard. You it try really be... hard to, but it's really challenging. And, uh, I, you know, I, like, I don't know what would be the ideal scenario here in a way. Well, I think you have close to the ideal scenario. All right. No, like when I saying, I don't know what would be the ideal scenario. Like I don't, I, it seems like it would be better off if I had no relationship to how my work was consumed. You yes, know? it would be. Um, and yet, uh, that would really contradict what I am like as a person who's incredibly aware of things like that and aware of the culture itself. And, and, and if my books have a role in the culture, how would I not know that? Oh, you know, I know what the thing is that you don't know about yourself, which is that you're cool. Ah. No, I mean, that's the thing that you, I mean, I said it before and a half hour ago and you blanched. Mm. You reject it. You kind of like don't even want to consider that that's a possibility because I think that word is so loaded or freighted for you. Well, I mean, everybody likes to be cool, I guess. I mean, of course, if I had to choose between people thinking if I was cool or uncool, I would prefer the former. But you know, it's, it's hard. It's, it's like, you know, you know, in a way, here's what drives me crazy. You know, it's like, okay, like doing this podcast. Yes. Um, the, the, the way the, the internet operates now. It's sort of like, in order to have, you know, like, I, I like to be able to write as living. In order to write as living, you have to sell books and you, know, you have to, you know, you, you, there's like, like I, there's, a, there's a division in my mind between writing and publishing. And yet, of course, there's a practical connection that uh, I need to write things and have them succeed or whatever. And then I can yeah. keep doing it, you know. In many ways, it would be to my advantage to never appear in public in any other way to never talk about this stuff at all to never talk about it to not have people like i i definitely think it uh it it detracted from like my work that people started hearing my voice i think it was better off when they didn't hear my know what my voice that was really like. happened to me with stephen king when i first really understood his voice it was really shocking it because you can't you can't, you can't forget that. It. yeah and, and and because a lot of my writing is voice heavy and people didn't know what my voice was like. That meant the voice they were hearing was one they created. Are you asking me to erase the podcast? Because I think that would be a real waste of no, like an hour of our time. It's too late. Last thing, <laughs> last thing, because I'm not going to erase it. Maybe I'll erase that one section in the middle. But um, I read this other quote. Oh, quickly, my son had a question for you, which mm-hmm. is this from the Nemesis Arch Enemy piece, which is you said that at your Nemesis, and I wonder if this has changed now for you, because he had a different alt, uh, which is. You said that at your nemesis' wedding, you'd go to the wedding and be happy for him, but you'd hope he'd get divorced. And he felt that maybe really all you'd hope is that you'd marry someone hotter, but you wouldn't really wish for divorce now. <laughs> That's possible. Like, because divorce seems a little intense. Yeah, it does. That was, I was trying to be funny. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, but, right? it's strange. It's strange when you, when that, you know, you're lucky if you have something like really remembered and yet it's also very weird if the thing that is remembered was something that you didn't think was that deep at the time sure that makes total sense to me last that makes total sense because you're saying you just wrote this thing and sort of people's relationship to it shouldn't continue to matter oh well i I mean can i guess i mean i've said you know I've, i've said this before but like if i would have any idea how many people were going to read sex drugs and cocoa puffs i could have never written that book there's no way. There's no way I would have done it. I would have been so freaked out and, and that I would have been so worried about everything, you know, and that's how I am now, I guess. Now it doesn't happen. Well, all right. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we're going to end on this question, but mm-hmm. obviously, like, when you go through what uh, for you the moment is, and maybe weirdly in a dark way, 
it's the reaction to this Tune Yards piece, which I hope isn't going to stop you from doing music journalism, because you write about music, I think, better than pretty much anybody else writing about it now. And uh, I think it'd be a loss if, if you stopped writing about it and stopped engaging in that way. But I found this one other quote um, from an old thing you'd written, and certainly not something that you, uh, I'm sure, agree with now, but it's in that same baseball soccer piece, which has the best title ever, which is uh, Nick Hornby versus George Will. George Will versus Nick Hornby. Which is, you're talking about the guys who played on your team. Do you know what I'm going to say? You you wrote, Now when I say my guys, I don't mean kids who are actually mine, as I am not father material, or human material, or even stack material. But, I mean, is it, you're a dad now. Yep. How do you... How, I mean, you... Did you ever think that this would be the case? And, and how have you felt it change the way you think? Um, well, you know, I, certainly when I wrote that book, I wasn't father material. Do you, I, ho- I, hope I'm a, I hope I'll be good at being a father. Of course, you know, it's, it changes the way... You, you know, I, I feel sort of like I have stayed the same, and yet my life seems totally different now. Um, uh that's just you know that's that's the thing you know it's like when you write something it doesn't disappear you know like the first page in that book i get asked about all the time you know and it's like what can i do besides say like well it was true when i wrote it i I don't even feel like that person anymore and yet i predict that's what i would say later so what can i do yeah yeah your your work lives and it's not that it just lives on after you're gone it, it lives right beside you and it, it doesn't evolve it's in, like it's in concrete so it it's just that you know you so the idea of you know being totally free as a writer that has a huge short-term benefit and a really weird long-term detriment i don't think so i i think ultimately the the benefit maybe not be uh, it may not be a benefit in, in your mind to you, but it's a benefit to the rest of us. So I hope you'll keep doing it. Oh, I'm sure I will. Thanks for doing this today. I know you're sick, and uh, I know that it probably got uh, a little more intense than you thought it would. So thanks. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on podcasts.